Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in today's show we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. But firstly, I'm delighted to have Tom Milner alongside me on the programme. Tom is the Founder and Managing Director of Service and Support Limited, which provides nationwide installation, maintenance and warranty support for all types of audiovisual and IT equipment. Uh, Tom, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. No problem at all, happy to be here. It's a real pleasure having you um, on, Tom. Um, reason um, we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership. But before we delve into that side of the discussion, um, it would be remiss of me not to ask you how the ongoing COVID-19 situation has affected your operations, because that's proven to be one of the greatest challenges for leadership within our time. It's certainly very, very interesting. Um, that's probably the best thing I can put on it. Um, you know, as, as a business, we're uh, we're pretty much well muffled at the moment, just simply because the majority of the work that we actually do is within the uh, the corporate and the uh, retail and banking uh, environment, and uh, you know it, it's still pretty dead out there. Um, there's obviously very little money to be spent by the uh, uh, retail environment specifically, but now people are starting to, to actually get back to work properly. That's incredibly positive. Do you think that there will be some kind of almost COVID-19 hangover over the uh, the sector and it could well affect your industry in the long term, this whole thing? Um, I, I think as a, as a general rule, this is going to affect us all for quite some time to come. Um, yeah, we, we were actually expecting to be working on quite a few large projects this year um, so far. Um, we've not heard anything about any of those projects uh, actually continuing. So we're, we're fairly pessimistic about what actual work there is to do out there. Um, but fortunately for us, we are actually um, you know, serving you know, some, some lots of different uh, verticals out there. So we're, you know, we're, we're hoping that we're actually going to cover what we need to do and uh, keep our staff running. Uh, by just serving, serving the, uh, the vertical that we're going. It's, it's quite interesting because the uh, uh, the opportunities that are out there, um, you know, some that I never would have predicted, have actually come alive. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a fairly long, hard slog out there. Um, you know, my worry is for the general community is just how many people are, are going to end up being out of work and uh, you know, whether indeed that will actually have an effect on us in the end. And when, of course, in, in from a leadership perspective, you are faced with dealing with a crisis, and I'm not just thinking of COVID-19, but also any difficulties in the day-to-day running of the business, how is it that you prepare yourself mentally for dealing with such a challenge? Um, well, let's see... Singular owner of the business, uh, you know, I've got pretty much just rely on myself. Uh, there isn't really any help out there that I can tell uh, for, for people like myself who uh, are pretty much just been left on their own while the uh, the rest of the business is on furlough. Uh, it's, it's been it's been quite hard, but you know, 
you keep your chin up when the British way and uh, you get on with it. How has it been managing everybody at the business from that mental health point of view? Because with people having to go on furlough, of course, and there being all of the uncertainty going forward, I can imagine you've had to maybe have one or two quite sensitive discussions with people as well. Um, to be fair, uh, I've actually been able to avoid that. Um, and, you know, not avoid it for avoiding sake, but just simply because it hasn't been necessary. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing I will say about uh, keeping the small businesses going was the, the furloughs did seem to work very well for us. You know, with, uh, with the income that we actually have had into the business, that's pretty much kept our heads above water in that respect. Um, you know, any other financial commitments that we had, we've managed to uh, put off or, or delay uh, until better times. But the uh, the furlough scheme actually worked very well for us. The, the telephone was from now on in August until October, and uh, just how much uh, it's going to affect us if we have to keep guys on furlough after that. And I suppose even when we are in sort of leadership roles in a business, um, we are still very much in the process of learning, aren't we? We're never sort of a finished article in terms of learning throughout our careers. So thinking about the fact that a lot of businesses have embraced the COVID-19 challenge as a learning curve, is there anything that you can take away from this experience as a positive that you have learned in terms of your capacity as a business leader? Uh, the biggest thing for me, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put uh, too big a spin on it, but, you know, the one thing we've learned is that when we started our business just a little over 10 years ago, when we invested in stuff like our phone systems and, uh, you know, our general infrastructure, we spent our money on the right things. Uh, we were actually able to work from home uh, with full access to our voiceover IP, our phone system, immediately. Um, so the one thing that we've realised is that actually, if we don't need to be in the office, we won't be in the office. Um, you know, we, we can actually have uh, as many people as we need that are sort of typically office-based. They can actually be based from home for, you know, a good amount of time. Um, the best thing for us is, and the, the thing we learned from it is because of that, um, that feature that we've discovered, um, but, you know, we were actually well prepared for is it means that we can actually offer additional services on different shifts or other uh, people don't actually have to come into the office to, to actually achieve those shifts. So, you know, we'd actually like to take that as a positive. Mm. Do you think that in the sort of workplace of the post-COVID future, there's going to be a place for the conventional office environment? Because we're seeing a lot of people are sort of shifting toward remote working already. But even so, we are ultimately social creatures as humans, aren't we? So there may still be a need for that environment. Yeah, I, I think it takes a very particular boost to, uh, to actually be able to work from home all the time. Um, you're right, we are very, very social. Um, the, the difficulty for me is that, you know, typically I'm, uh, I'm out about every day of the week, and uh, the difficulty for me is uh, you know, not being able to uh, you know, physically in, in, interact just by shaking hands. Um, you know, that's, that's probably one of the most difficult things for me. Uh, but, you know, I've been managing to do that for every year. Um, in those social distancing rules already uh, at a show I attended and you know 
it's something you get used to. I just hope it doesn't last forever because it's, uh, you know, there's nothing better than actually going to see your customers and uh, there's nothing better than actually interacting with them on a face-to-face basis. Uh, you, know, you get quite fatigued with uh, just video calls and, uh, and teleconference phone calls. Uh, it can actually get quite dull. Uh, it's not very good for the soul. Um, and I think that goes exactly the same way for your customers as well. You know, they like to interact with, uh, with their partners. And it's, uh, it's not easy for them to do that if, uh, if you're not able to get in front of them and actually have a face-to-face conversation. So I, I think uh, overall it's, it's going to be interesting to see how people adapt. But I think we've got to realise that, you know, some people just aren't tuned into it and they need to have the you know, social contract of attending an office every day. And we've got to make sure that we, we don't try and ignore that um, as long as it's safe to do so. Certainly, I understand exactly where you're coming from from that point of view, Tom. Just reflecting a little bit of a moment on earlier on in uh, your career, um, you founded um, Service and Support in 2009, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And of course, in the 11 years um, that you've sort of founded the business, um, you've sort of come out of um, a a recession, um, as it were. You've now sort of embraced the impact of uh, COVID-19 and you've sort of taken on that challenge. But with all of those years in business now under your belt and all of that experience in crisis management, if we call it that, if you could go back 11 years to when you first started service and support, is there anything that you would do differently going forward? Um, well, I think the biggest mistake that we made was, uh, you know, we, uh, we actually employed so many people so quickly. Um, yeah, we were probably a bit too headstrong about how many, you know, uh, contacts we were going to be able to negotiate on a fairly quick basis. Uh, you know, we had a few letdowns in terms of customers that promised us work before we started, but you know, that, that, that's not really down to damage. It's down to me and uh, making sure that we had enough business to take guys on. So, you know, while we were still in that recession, I did that unfortunately make the guys redundant. And, yeah, they were good guys. Um, but the one thing I would uh, Definitely not do again is, is not take so many people on. Uh, it just you know, would have saved me a fortune, uh, hopefully and utterly, in, in terms of you know, how my business has performed since. You know, we've, we've actually run it very well. But if we'd actually had that money that we could have uh, kept in the city rather than paying out to uh, staff, it would have helped us enormously. And obviously, having reflected on the past, Tom, I think it only serves that we talk about the future as well, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today. Um, We know that over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working until we can decisively shake off COVID-19. But during that period, what is next for you and for service and support? And what does the business ultimately hope to achieve? Uh, Well, we hope to head back to growth. Uh, as soon as possible. Um, you know, the, uh, this year we're supposed to be quite a spectacular year, but uh, unfortunately for a completely different reason. Um, our revenues are probably somewhere between a, a, a quarter and a half of what they uh, actually should have been. Um, so year on year, we're, we're, we're obviously going to be down quite a lot. I think the, uh, the best thing I can hope for is that actually you know, the, the social distancing that we still want to deal with and, and, you know, the retail environment that obviously suffering a lot at the moment. 
Uh, but hopefully they we recover and bounce back quickly. But if they don't, um, you know, that's obviously a much darker outlook for us. Um, you know, it just depends how much it's going to work. Uh, the one thing I really would like to see is, uh, you know, some, uh, some better tax rules in place for the these online businesses that are actually having a fairly drastic effect on the, uh, the rest of the retail and, and banking environment. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not playing in the same pool, so to speak. Uh, so there's not much fairness out there. You know, I realise it doesn't have a direct effect on me and my business, but actually over a few years, it most definitely would because if we actually spent a bit more money on uh, concentrating on cultivating the retail of the future, um, then actually we uh, we might be better off as a as a community and as a country. But at the moment, I don't see that happening. Mm. Let's certainly see what does happen in the uh, the future. It is going to be an interesting and an uncertain time, Tom, and we can only really speculate, of course, on what may come along. Um, but I think just given how informative it's been discussing these issues with you today, it would be great to catch up in the future just to see exactly what does transpire over the uh, the next few months and we can catch up on where the business is at at that point as well. Sure, that'd be really good. It'd be fantastic for me as well. I've really enjoyed having you on the uh, the programme uh, with us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Thanks very much for having me. That was Tom Milner speaking, founder and managing director of Service and Support. Um, next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett, um, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland these days as well. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords who built his career on being a renowned Labour MP and Secretary of State during Tony Blair's ministry. He held a number of senior positions in Blair's cabinet, as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and he enjoyed such a prominent career despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from 
not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, Uh, we'll be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care 
system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and 
chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. 
we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's 
the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, have to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.